thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're trying something different. We're airing an authentic media snapshot, as we call it. It's a portion of one of the shows that are military aviation based from our friends over at Authentic Media. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here we go. This is Authentic. All right, welcome to the show. We're here talking with Mike Paco Benitez, F-15 Strike Eagle Weapon Systems Officer. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. All right, well, today we're going to talk about the F-15 EX, but before we get into the EX, let's talk about the F-15 itself, the base eagle, where it came from, and how it evolved. Uh, Mike, or Paco, as I'll call you, uh, why don't you talk us through that? Yeah, so the the tweet-level summary is that in the 1960s, the Soviet Union uh, shocked the West with an aircraft called the MiG-25. It was, uh, it was an interceptor, and it could fly Mach 2 to Mach 2.5 and then up to Mach 3 with some uh, very lim- uh, detrimental to his <laughs> engines. And that had shocked the Pentagon into developing a counter to the MiG-25. And so the requirements uh, for the F-15, what became the F-15, were largely based on the MiG-25. Now, at the time, they didn't know what it could and couldn't do. They just saw a fighter type of aircraft going very, very high, very, very fast. And so that led to the requirements. So the requirements for the F-15 um, led to a contract in 1969. That's how old it was. But it went from uh, concepts to requirements in about 1967 on contract to 1969. And then it was operational by 1975. So it was a pretty quick program. And the whole premise of the program is we want a... Uh, we want a massive radar to go intercept these fast, high fighters from the Soviet Union. And you want to carry big missiles, and it has to fly Mach 2.5. So that led to a very big, over-engineered, aerodynamically stable design. And when the aircraft was designed, it didn't have you know uh, computers back then. And so it's a lot of slide rule and pencil math. And so what, you, what it led to is a pretty well-engineered, enduring design. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting aeronautical features in it, most of which I, I can't remember anymore. Uh, but it led to a uh, the first thing you notice at the time when it came out, uh, the people who were uh, the guys were flying the Century Series and the uh, and the Phantom. The first thing they noticed is like, wow, that thing is big. It is a big aircraft. We like to call it the uh, the flying tennis court. So we have some <laughs> you guys who used to fly the F-16 that come over to the F-15, and they you know they turn around and they're like you know flying BFM or dogfighting, and they go, oh my god, it's like a flying tennis court behind me. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a big target, uh, and and that's kind of sets the stage. Like the Raptor is a very very large aircraft as well. Yeah, uh, and, and there's a reason why it's they're they're comparable size, comparable missions. Yeah, uh, but the F-15, it's it's a big aircraft. It's got big, big wings, and it's got uh, it actually has a pretty low wing loading. So the weight to wing ratio 
uh, based on how much uh, surface area is in the wings. It allows it uh, to be pretty maneuverable at very high speeds and high altitudes, and uh, it's got some pretty powerful engines, which gives it a, a high thrust-to-weight ratio. So that's kind of how the whole F-15 program uh, began. And it, it really was a quantum leap, right? Because you go back to the Century series, and they were pretty optimized for each of their roles. And the F-4 was a multi-mission or the start of the sort of multi-mission aircraft. But this was something entirely new, something that outperformed everything out there. And as it turned out, outperformed the MiG-25. Because as we found out in, was it 75? I'll let you tell that story. But we found out that uh, in that case, the bear that we thought was 10 foot tall and bulletproof wasn't. That's right. It was It was about the time we were fielding it. We had the uh, we had the, the the defector at the MiG twenty five, and I actually figured out it actually it couldn't do anything that we thought it could do. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, but that that set the stage. The F fifteen set the stage for what became retroactively referred to as a fourth generation fighter. Mm-hmm. So the the things that set it apart from we'll call it the third generation at the time. Um, and actually, let's just zoom out a little bit. Yeah. So if you go back to the first generation, the first generations of uh, jets had jet engines. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of where you start. <laughs> World War II fighter with jet engines, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You get your, like, your, your ME-262s. And yeah. You, you sweep a wing here and there, but yeah. That's right. Yeah. Your, yeah. your early Korean War. And then you get to the second generation of fighters, which is now I have my engine technology has matured. My airframe and aeronautical understanding has matured. So now I can go supersonic and I have some, some limited avionics. So I have a, a maybe a range finding radar. I have some very limited air to air missiles. And this kind of describes the century series fighters. Mm-hmm. So they learn a lot. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. And then you get to the third generation of fighters, which is kind of the advent of the multi-role fighter. So I can build one aircraft and I can put a whole bunch of different things on it. I can put different uh, systems in it. And then through training, I can use it for different things at the time. And so the F-4 is probably the, the hallmark example of a third generation fighter. And so the fourth generation fighter, what that brought was basically microchips. So the advent mm-hmm. of the microchip and that allowed things like synthetic aperture radar or pulse Doppler radar where I can look down, shoot down, where before you couldn't, if you were uh, an interceptor and you were looking at a target that was below you, the signal processing at the time wouldn't allow you to dig it out of the, the noise, the background clutter of the ground. And so when we talk about look down, shoot down, that is a, a fourth generation and beyond capability, uh, thanks to the advent of uh, microchips and there's some material sciences for uh, how the you know the antenna arrays are built, and so that's kind of where that all starts with avionics and you get some sensors and and now we have even more powerful engines and so now we can actually have positive thrust to weight ratio so I can I can accelerate in the vertical in some low fuel uh, instances and so if you see some pictures of like the uh, the F-15 going vertical uh, and some of the newer fighters like that's that is kind of the the hallmark of that as a fourth generation fighter. Then you get into fifth generation fighters. And I would say that the the number one thing that distinguishes them is the signature. So they're built to have a different passive radio frequency signature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other things are, are kind of happy to glad. So it's got sensors, it's got fusion. Those are things that you can put on other aircraft. But the one thing that actually makes it different is it accounts for a signature, specifically a very certain type of signature. And that is important because when you get into defining what will become a sixth generation fighter, 
you know, I could, I could, I could describe what the probably think it's going to be right now, which it's going to be, it's going to have no tail. So yeah. to, to quantify what a sixth generation fighter is, I don't think it'll have a tail. No country in the world is going to build a, a sixth generation fighter with a tail. I think there's a half dozen different uh, efforts going on around the world. None of them have tails. There's mm-hmm. a reason for that. Um, you're going to have open mission systems and you're going to have digital engineering. So you have a digital twin. You can iterate on the sensors, the hardware and the software really, really quickly. And you have an inherently um, wider band, lower signature design. So that's kind of the generations in a nutshell. And I, and I say that with a big asterisk, there's actually no official designation of those generations that I just made up, but there is about (laughs) four or five different frameworks that do exist. And they're, they're roughly what I've just described. Right. And so really that jump from fourth to fifth, and don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but that fourth to fifth really comes down to some stuff that are baked in, if you will. Like you can't redesign the airframe to an enormous extent. And a lot of that discrete passive signature you're talking about has to do with physical geometry. It does. And, 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 and I yeah. say, and that's one spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can get into, into that discussion if you want. So there's, there's a, what would you call like uh, stealth mm-hmm. traditionally uh, you would, that is a radio frequency, a narrow band, narrow as- aspect, radio frequency, capability. Mm-hmm. So at a certain frequency range, at a, at a certain range from that emitter, at a certain angle, I can control what that reflectivity is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not all aspect, that's not all frequencies, and that's not all ranges. And so we develop tactics to kind of maximize that capability. Now, that that's a two-sided equation, though. So uh, that's number one, that's only RF. So there's mm-hmm. an IR spectrum, there's an audible spectrum, there's a magnetronic spectrum like there's if you're putting metal in the air and it's moving through and disturbing molecules it it is it, there is something that is emitting there's a signature um, there. yeah there is a signature right so that's part of it and the other part of it is the enemy gets a vote and so the, right. the systems that the enemy is developing <laughs> uh i would say have have advanced dramatically in the past 15 years uh, and to the point of of you're seeing like there's there's other generational leaps and you know, tactics and technology development to kind of a cat and cat and dog game. So I'm going to do this. There's going to be a counter to it. There's a counter counter to it. And it kind of goes back and forth. So right. it's not a, you know, I've heard it called the price of entry. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that, uh, believe that there's a time and a place for attributes and platform capabilities. And as it turns out, if you have, you know, an entire football team of quarterbacks and you put all of them on the field, you're probably going to lose. Yeah. It's not going to work quite, quite as well. Yeah. Yeah. So taking that, let's roll back to the F-15 in its, you know, the A model, right? We'll go back to the beginning. As you said, solidly fourth gen, because it defined fourth gen in a lot of ways. So there's, uh, I don't know if there's A models flying in anyone's inventory anymore, but We'll keep stuff uh, on the open source level just to be careful throughout the discussion. You know, what did the F-15 bring to the table in terms of sort of height, speed, range? We talked about speed a little bit already, but height, speed, range, and ability to engage. Yeah, so uh, the first thing, it had power. Uh, so it could uh, it could accelerate very quickly. I think it was one of the first fighters that had a thrust-to-weight ratio that was positive, so it could accelerate in the vertical the the second thing that it had was speed so it had an actual stated requirement for Mach 2.5 based on the MiG right. 25 so they had to design an airframe to go Mach 2.5 which at the time 
introduced a whole bunch of other engineering challenges. So if you notice on the on the F15, the the inlets they actually mm -hmm. move. So they move up and down, and then inside the inlets, there's a bunch of trap doors with perforations that move around. And the reason is, in a turbine engine, the process of, of thrust is suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Well, you can suck all the air in if you're going you know, Mach 2.5, but you can't compress uh, supersonic right. air. It's uncompressible. So just like the SR-71 had those big nozzles, it had had those, those big cones. Those cones were there to slow the air down enough between the, the intake and the front of the engine to get it subsonic so it could be compressed. So the F-15 has a series of uh, inlet ramps that move around, and there's a flight control computer that does it all for us, and that allows us to go faster. Uh, like the F-16 has a fixed inlet, and so it's it's speed limit of, of just what it can do by just design. Right. Now, that's not saying that it's tactically useful to go Mach 2.5, <laughs> but the, <Right>. aircraft, <laughs> the aircraft can go Mach 2.5. That is, uh, it, it does. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a glossy brochure. Right. In, in fact, the F-15 SA, we'll get a little bit ahead, but the F-15 SA, which is the, uh, which the EX is based off of in the, for flight sciences, they had to actually validate that requirement still with the new engines and the new airframe. So they had to go actually in, out and take it to uh, to the limit. So sure, it could do. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it got there, but uh, yeah, that's that's not really where you want to live tactically. But right. I want to say it got to Mach two point nine, like seven something, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Yep, that's good enough." Yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or Mach two point four nine. That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we're talking about a, a production aircraft. This is not a, you know, specialty one-off or a, an X-plane or something. We're talking about making production aircraft that, you know, understood. They're probably not all going to hit, you know, 2.49 because various issues, but they're going to be doing over two. So so it's a fast plane. You know, it's a capable plane. We talked about the look down, shoot down radar, pretty decent range on that radar, and then carried decent host of missiles right oh yeah yeah it can carry uh so the ex carries 12 as is and then it has some expansion options in the glossy brochure that the air force didn't buy <laughs> but it does it can carry 12 yeah i've seen it with 12 it carries them yep it, it's a lot i mean the raptor carries you know carries six long range and then two short range the ex can carry 12 long range or it can carry a mix of them uh it's really just kind of choose your own adventure at that point but beyond the rails and, and the swappability is the fact that they're external. Uh, if and when a larger, longer-range missile mm -hmm. makes, makes an appearance in the future, um, there are rails in the sky to put it on. Right. Whereas you're not going to be able to squeeze that inside an F-22. You're not going to squeeze it inside an F-35 because uh, the yeah, – in one of those sad stories – we built uh, the the Air Force or the U.S. military basically designed the F-22 around the AIM-120, and the AIM-20 AIM-120 was a early 1980s design. Right. So we were uh, we were constrained by just the energetics that are possible to fit in that much of a weapons bay. Right. And so when you go back to that first generation, or or really the what would you call them, the light gray eagles, right? The the A, B, C. Yeah. Uh, we call them the, the C, C model. model. Everyone's either C yeah. model or the light gray or the Eagle, depending on what side you're on. Yeah. yeah. The light gray, you know, you started back there with eight missiles and a gun, which seemed like plenty back then. And you mentioned the EX 
is up to 12. And we'll talk about that EX development in a little bit. But before we go there, you know, met, need to mention that uh, not a pound for air to ground was also a philosophy here, right? On that original light gray C model Eagle. It was one thing, do it really well. And that was air to air, right? Yeah, it and most people don't realize this. It does have the 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 F15C and D actually does have some air to ground capability. The Air Force, the US Air Force doesn't really use it, but the, it it is in there. It's in the jet. It's just not something we use. Um, and I say that because uh, the Israelis who have F15Cs and Ds, they actually do kind of a mix. So they'll fly an offensive counter air with eight AMRAMs, but then they'll take the center line and they'll have a, a mm-hmm. bomb so or a cruise missile. So they're doing kind of the same thing. Uh, it's some pretty interesting tactics that the Israelis yeah. use it for. But yeah, the not a pound for air to ground. And, and really that comes down to more of a philosophy of the training. And so if I, it's like the A-10 community, love those guys. They're, you know, here's your thing, do it well. And, you know, as a, as a guy who grew up and lived in a, in a squadron with more missions than I could remember, <laughs> having the pros from Dover who are like, Hey, I'm really good at these three things. Like, great. Like I'm not as good at these 12 things. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, they're, they're in the books. Right. Exactly. But those other nine you may need today. Right. You know, so that's right. It's enough to kind of, again, uh, you're a utility player if you're switching analogies to baseball, yeah. but the, the fact that you could be so focused on air superiority and that, and that kind of helped to wrap your community out quite a bit. Um, and then we brought some other people from different communities when that community stood up to bring just a different lens to how to achieve air superiority. But they were uniquely focused on that. Uh, the air dominance division out at Nellis uh, with the C-models and the Raptors, like that's that's kind of like the beating heart of, of air superiority for the Air Force. And I'm, and I'm glad it exists. Right. But as, as uh, things developed as the C model was developing out of those early light gray eagles, there was another capability that was brought to bear with the dark gray eagle, right? And uh, if anyone out there can tell us that story, I think it's you. So, you know, what's the what are the dark gray eagles? Well, back in the the, the mid '80s, I want to say it was '85 time frame. There was there were some concepts about taking uh, an F-16, and there was a variant of an F-16 that actually had a delta wing that apparently was pretty amazing. And McDonnell Douglas at the time, who, who made the F-15, they had self-funded this project to turn the F-15 into a air-to-ground bomber, essentially. And so they had these thing called, uh, I think they're called fast packs, and I can't remember what what it stood for. And what it was is what, what currently we call conformal fuel tanks, those actually had like 11 or 12 different types of uh, packs that you could put on there. Some of them were fuels. Some of them were, some of them were like built in jammers. Some of them were antenna arrays. It was actually a pretty, pretty novel concept. And then they, uh, they figured out like, actually this not a pound for air to ground, this, this airframe, we overbuilt it. It's actually designed pretty well. And so they were able to take an F 15 D and, modify it and put a whole bunch of weapons on it to show like, Hey, this thing can actually carry some, can carry some weight. And so that ended up turning into the F 15 E program. And so the D was the two seat variant of the air to air. It was a training jet basically. So the E, the first few E models were actually converted D models. So they're just, uh, there's one or two of them still flying and they're all, they're wired all differently. They're Franken jets. <laughs> we call them, uh, the, the, the pub, each pub is kind of tied to that specific tail cause they're all wired different. Yeah. 
But that's how that program started. So the E model, the original E model, got the F-15 D and C engines, so the Pratt & Whitney 220s. It got the missionized cockpit in the back seat, so they're not different. And there's some things you can do in the back you can't do in the front and vice versa. And it was set up that way. Uh, actually, as an outgrowth of the F-4, as the F-4 matured through its life cycle, they realized the value in having a multi-role fighter. They said, hey, what if we turn the F-15 into like a, a new kind of F-4? And that's what ended up being the Strike Eagle. So it went IOC, so it went mm -hmm. operational in 1989, and then it got shipped right off to Desert Storm, and uh, it kind of made its uh, made its way trying to do scud hunting and a few other things. Uh, I want to say when it deployed, uh, not not the, not all the jets even had targeting pods or terrain following radars. They were just kind of doing the best they could with what they had. Yeah, as you do, right? That's sort of the the military. That's uh, right. You get to fight with what you got, not what you want. But I think you bring up a good point, which is a lot. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. A lot of times, or at least I'll say from a guy standing outside the Air Force looking in, there's a perception that the F-15E was a strike platform, you know, sort of analogous to the F-111 or the A-6. But as you mentioned, it's it's more than that. It's multi-role. It is multi-role. And I like, to, I like to say it, it carries uh, almost every weapon in the inventory. Uh, so to include a 5,000-pound bunker busters, to include, you know, air-to-air -air missiles, obviously, uh, to include nuclear weapons, cruise missiles, you know, it, it could fit a lot on that jet. And the fact that it has a the missionized cockpit allows it for a division of duties. So you can do some pretty, pretty interesting things with it. And then as time was going on, the F-15 was exported, sold to other countries and in several different variants. And I know you mentioned the SA already. I don't know if we want to start there, but I think one of the key things is a lot of countries started seeing the value of that two-man cockpit, right? Or two-person cockpit, I should say. Yeah, what actually, what, it's interesting that you mentioned that the driving factor wasn't necessarily um, the two-person concept or human factors or division of duties or missionized cockpit. It was money. Really? Okay. So the the C model, uh, the you know the F-15C, it went out of production you know a long time ago. Well, the F-15E because it started later, it finished later, mm -hmm. and so it went operational in '89. And I want to say the last new aircraft that came off that line that went to the U.S. Air Force was in 2001. Well, by then, there are some other countries who had signed up for exports. And so Boeing started selling them 
um, overseas. And so there's e-model variants and, and export configurations kind of running around uh, everywhere. And I, I, I won't even remember them all if I try to list them. Uh, Israel has some. Singapore has some of the newer ones, not the newest. Mm-hmm. There's, um, well, the, the Saudis have the original, the F-15S. Right. And now they're, they're buying the essays, which we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely some exports out there. And that kept the production line open. And so now you have what we'll call FMS, for material sales. And so the State Department gets these requests. Uh, country X wants to buy some aircraft. They go through the process. They approve it. And then those contracts flow through, say, the U.S. Air Force for Air Force stuff for, say, Boeing to build an aircraft that then we as the U.S. Air Force deliver to a foreign country. And so for probably 20, eh, about 20 years or so, the the production line for the F-15 has been kept open by foreign material sales. Nice. Okay. And so they fly in one seat, two seat as their tactics, manning, mission require. Yeah. And I, I want to, I, I think almost everyone flies as a two seat. Mm-hmm. There might be one or two exceptions. Okay, but that's the uh, but that's the legacy F fifteen, and 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 it, it's an important story to realize that how FMS kind of kept the production line open because as those customers have different needs and time goes on, the configuration between that last F fifteen E that rolled off the line and those subsequent F 15s started to change. Right, and so Singapore was the first country that said, hey. These F-15s are great. <laughs> what I want, I don't want a Pratt & Whitney engine. I want a General Electric engine. It's mm-hmm. so Singapore paid extra money for the flight sciences testing and the flight control computer development and all the stuff that's required to put GE-129 engines in the F-15. Right. And so their, their jets are the first ones with GE-129 engines. Okay. And that became now the basis of like, well, I guess every aircraft off coming off the line will have that now. <laughs> right. And so that's kind of how you got into uh, into the the GE and went from Pratt to GE. To GE. And, uh, I, yeah. But that, and I can talk to, I've, I've, I've flown them all. I can tell you the differences between yeah. them. <laughs> well, I mean, I probably want to hear about that as we talk through it. But I think, you know, this goes back to what you were saying, the general soundness of the overall design. You know, change out the software, change out the engines, change out whatever you need, the, you know, the fast packs that gave way to the conformal tanks and you know, just a fundamentally sound design from the beginning that allowed all this. But while all that's going on, you know, as, as we start talking about the early 2000s, the F-22 appears on the scene, right? Is the new air dominance fighter. And, and I believe that was U.S. only, right? We, we went alone on that one. That is right. So that's actually a good segue because you really you can't talk about the F-15EX without talking about the F-15C, and you can't talk about the F-15C without talking about the yeah. F-22. So there's a there's some interconnected history between all of these things that are really really important, and it's kind of confusing if you're not living in this kind of uh, career field or in this profession. So if you if you go back and you think of how militaries. You know, think about force design, which is what do I want my, what do I want my force mm-hmm. to look like? How am I going to fight a war? And so if you go back in 20-year, 30-year horizons is what a lot of this planning happens. And so you obviously have to make some bets and guesses and there's assumptions. So in the 1970s, the Air Force had envisioned as these first F-15s are rolling off the line, the first F-16s are rolling off the line – they're thinking, I have a high-low mix. This is what we're going to do. By the 1990s, we're going to have this fleet of F-15s 
doing air superiority and they're going to be escorting this massive force of small, cheap, plentiful F-16s and A-10s. Like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. So that was the original plan in the 70s. And so you can see by the 90s, we, we kind of had that. Well, then you think by in the 2000s, so late 90s, early 2000s, we say, you know what? If we replace all the F-15s with F-22s and we take all of the F-16s, all the A-10s and all the F-117s and replace them with F-35s, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have this massive fleet of F-22s dominating the skies, escorting small, cheap, plentiful F-35s. <laughs> and so the original plan was by 2025, the U.S. Air Force would be a 100% fifth-gen force, just as I described. Right. Because after all the... Obviously, that didn't Right, because the F-35, <laughs> it was actually originally the joint strike fighter, right? And if you think about the the strike fighter, probably the original plane to have that moniker was the F-18 Hornet. No slouch, but in its inception, it was it was a little bit of a high-low mix. I'm going to incur the wrath of a bunch of my Hornet pilot friends now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, back in the day, F-14 was going to do the fleet air defense and be the interceptor. The F-18 was filling in for the F-4, the uh, A-7, so on and so forth. But as you said, that, that F-35 grew, grew into be something else. Yep. Well, if you look at the, again, you go back to the original requirements, the actual numbers, it was 381 F-22s would escort 1,763 F-35s. That's, that was the actual requirement. Yeah. And, and I can get to that 381 on the Raptor in just a minute, but yeah. the, but the F-35, that 1,763, it's a very specific number and that's the requirement. And it's probably like the worst kept secret in Washington, D.C. of that's how many aircraft we're going to buy. <laughs> but that's the number that's in the requirement from mm-hmm. 2004. And the re- the way they got that is they literally counted up every single A-10, F-16, and F-117 huh. that, that, was, that was in service and said, how many do we have? 1,763. Like slap the table. That's the yeah. requirement. <laughs> so... Interestingly, this that's why the, the A10 being looped, in, uh, you know, lumped into that. That was an original requirement from 2004, and it wasn't until you know probably five years ago that people in Congress started getting up in arms about the F35 replacing the A10. It's like, wait, you knew this was going to happen. This was this is why the F35 has a 25 millimeter gun yeah. and not a 20 <laughs> millimeter gun. Yeah, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars to shoehorn a 25 <laughs> millimeter cannon into the F-35 yeah. because it was going to replace the Harrier and the A-10. And it's the, really the Harrier gun, except that w- the Harrier gun wouldn't fit either. The GAU-12, they <laughs> actually had to take a barrel out and, t- and take all the rounds out of it. Yeah. So now the GAU-22, it's a four-barrel Gatling gun with 180 rounds. So, uh, you know, how are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I tell you that to say that you know, the F-35, all that numbers I just told you, did you, did you notice there's one aircraft that was not in that plan was the F-15. Mm-hmm. The F-15 is not part of the F-35 requirement at all. It was never part of it. What it was, was part of the F-22 requirement. Right. And so in the same logic that the Air Force had back in the mid to late 80s, the original requirement for F-22s was 750. As it turns out, there's 750 F-15s at the time. That's where they got the number from. It's just funny so, how that happens. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. So that's how that happened. The problem with the Raptor, though, uh, and I know it's it's still there's a lot of a lot of heartburn from uh, the Air Force for what happened. You know, it was a tragedy. It's amazing. It's an amazing aircraft. Yep. It's awesome. What happened was though it it just came of age at the wrong time, and so the original requirement in the 80s was 750. 
uh, by the time that the YF-22 beat the YF-23 in the flyoff competition, the Cold War had just ended, and the requirement had already dropped to 648. Right. And yeah. and then 48 months later, uh, in 93, it was called the bottom-up review, which was a mm-hmm. massive force redesign for the peace dividend. They dropped a requirement down to 442, and you're like, uh-oh, this is not going well. Yeah. So just in a matter of a couple of years, the requirements kind of been in half. Yeah. And by the time that the first F-22 flew, the requirement had already been cut down to about 350 jets. And it kept dropping and dropping. And there was a huge food fight. Got the chief of staff fired trying to save the jet. Uh, and by the time it went operational in 2005, you know, it, it was kind of on. They knew they were going to cut the program. And so it ended the buy at 187 jets in 2009. Yeah. And now the problem, and that that story is important. Again, this is right. not this is not fifth gen history. Uh, this is an e- a podcast on the F fifteen EX. <laughs> right. So I I told you that story because you know actions have consequences, and so now every time the the F twenty two had a program curtailment that led to an extension of an F fifteen. Right. It was almost a one for one. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to cut a hundred Raptors, all right, we're going to extend a hundred F 15s and so what had happened was by 2007, they realized like, oh, like we're not going to get anywhere close to the number of, of Raptors that we actually required. And there was a study that actually said 381 was the, the no kidding, no kidding requirement. And then we could have 250 with, you know, some medium risk. And they said, here's your 187, like live with it. Yeah. And so what the Air Force did at the same time, they said, okay, we're going to kick off a new program and it's called the Golden Eagle program. And what, the, what it was is we're going to take the, at the time, there was about 650 or so F-15s still flying, the C models. We're going to get rid of the oldest ones. We're going to pick the, the best ones we have. I think it was 180 or so. And we're going to upgrade all of them with these new ESA radars. Mm-hmm. And we're going to fly them to 2030. That's the plan. So this was the plan in 2007. And so that, and it was done on the cheap. There's a... There's a lesson here. So what was done on the cheap. So so what it did is said, okay, well, we don't want to develop a whole new radar. That's expensive. So like, how about we just develop an antenna? And so like, well, no, we don't even want to develop an antenna. We have an antenna from this other program called the APG 63 V2, which was this um, uh, couple jets, a couple F-15s had this radar. Uh, the APG 63 V1 is a mechanical scanned array. So it has a little servo. It bounces back and forth. That's your kind of legacy radar. Your your V3 is your active electronically scanned antenna, AESA. And so they said, great, we have an antenna. Uh, we don't have any of the avionics. And so the, the Golden <laughs> Eagle program took the Navy's Super Hornet radar mm-hmm. avionics, the APG-79, and basically mounted it and paired it with the APG-63 antenna. Because the the for those who don't know... The F-15, I told you it was a large aircraft. It has a 36-inch radar antenna on the front of it. It is the biggest radar array of a fighter in the world. It is massive. And so if you can take some avionics off of even a smaller aircraft and pair it to a very, very large antenna, you can do some really interesting things with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with the Golden Eagle program. Oh, by the way, uh, this is you couldn't couldn't make this up. At the same time that that was happening, they made that decision back in 2007. They had an F-15 break apart in flight over St. Louis. Right. And uh, and I don't know if you remember that, but luckily the guy lived. 
and that landed to grounding the fleet. Um, I was actually deployed at the time when that got grounded, and I was in a strike. And I was like, "Are we grounded?" They're like, "Yeah, you're grounded too." <laughs> like, "Oh," and then they said, "No, no, you're not grounded. Go no, fly." No, you're not. Okay. <laughs> D- different F-15s. Red, no blue. <laughs> yeah. So that led to uh, a whole bunch of those lawsuits about manufacturing defects and these thing called longerons, with these little strips of metal that connect the the barrel, so the nose of the aircraft to the fuselage. Mm-hmm. And one of those had failed, so the nose broke off in flight. So the pilot is is in the front of the aircraft. The aircraft is left him behind, and so he uh, he ejects out of the the cockpit. Yeah. So, and I tell you that story because if you fast forward ten years, um, by about 2018, I was working in the Pentagon at the time. Around 2018, it was pretty clear from looking at all the data that those Golden Eagles weren't going to yeah. make it to 2030. They they were pretty bent. The A lot of corrosions, they were coming to depot and they start taking these panels off. They were finding all kinds of issues that were never projected to show up. Uh, so you'd have some aircraft that would go into depot and they would just mm-hmm. get retired. Like they're so broken that they, they, like, you couldn't fly it out. So like, well, I guess we're going to you know, put it on a truck and send it to the boneyard. And so that was happening. There was G limits, airspeed limits, and all kinds of things trying to um, triage the fleet. And so that kind of sets the stage of, hey, our F-15s are falling out of the sky. These are not going to make the 2030. We didn't buy enough F-22s. The F-35 has its own program requirements, and it's it's not doing too well either, uh, as every program mm-hmm. has of that size and scale. It's going to have some growing pains. Uh, so this is where the... There's an office in the Pentagon that kind of comes in, which just changes the whole story for the Air Force. Uh, and this is called uh, OSD CAPE, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, Cost Assessment Program Evaluation. That's CAPE. And so what they do is, most people don't realize this, but when the Air Force says, I want to spend $100 million and do this, and if it's above a certain amount, especially for a program, um, they don't actually get to make that call. They have to, they're asking. And this is the office that gives them the approval. And so what they do is they do the cost assessment and the program evaluation, just like the name implies. They look at force structure analysis, cost benefits, war gaming, and they look at, you know, indirect costs, direct costs, like what's the implications over, you know, the five, 10, 15 year time frame. So they're looking at all of these things. And this office had had you know seen what was going on and they kind of they tapped the air force and said hey in your 2020 budget request that you have sitting on our desk i know you i noticed that you don't have any fourth gen fighters in it like we will we will give you money to go buy the fourth gen fighters and like well, well where are you going to get the money from I'm like oh we we'll to take it from the navy <laughs> so the so the the money and long story short the money to buy the first F-15 EXs, the whole program that started came from the Navy's budget of Super Hornets. And so it was going to go to the same manufacturer. So it was going to go to Boeing no matter what. It was just a matter of the Navy, which had been drowning in new Super Hornets because they were actually getting too many. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually was a, it was a, it was a no-brainer. Well, that set off a bunch of uh, internal politics from the Air Force. There's some talking points about, you know, fifth gen is the only way to go. Uh, you get few, if you take off in a fourth gen, you're going to die. And there's all kinds of dramatic talking points, none of which are accurate. But there's a narrative. And the narrative, it's important to know, like the, the narrative is not without cause. Remember the whole story I just told you about the, the Raptor? Yeah. 
Like the last thing you want to do is do something that's going to put the F-35 program at jeopardy right. because you can't afford to go through that again. Right. And that's the same thing for those who don't realize, like that's why there's only 20 B-2s. Yeah. Because the same exact thing happened with the B-2 program. So the Air Force is extremely sensitive about something that's going to counter something that they're trying to buy. Cause it's, it's been them a couple times mm-hmm. in the past couple decades. So I don't, you know, I don't blame them for that. It's, I mean, that's, that's logical to me, but the re- the way that they did it, and this is, you know, normally you think like, well, you can't just take money and move it around um, because Congress has to get involved. And this is where uh, the law comes in. So there's this authority called a section 804 middle tier acquisition, an MTA. And this is a law that Congress wrote that says, hey, if you want to do a rapid prototyping or rapid procurement, this is what you do. You write a, a couple page document that says, I have a requirement and you can move money within your own budget inside the years and you can do it. And like, oh, okay. And so that's the F-15EX is an MTA program. It's one of the interesting authorities that Congress actually gave the Pentagon. So it had to it had to fit the time and the rough size of the F eighteen Super Hornet hole that it was pulling from. Well, the money wise, the yeah, money the wise, money, like yeah. we have. Yeah. I forgot how much it was, but it was like we have you know six point seven billion dollars over the fight up to buy like the first few uh, lots of aircraft uh, here. Right here you are. Put it in your put it in your yeah here you are. Put it in your budget planning. So the first year when the FY twenty budget came out, it was one point two billion for the first eight aircraft and some. Uh, what we call NRE, non-recurring engineering. Mm-hmm. But the the way, and this is important why it's, I'll talk about this authority. The reason that authority exists is rapid fielding means I have something that is, I can buy today. I don't have to develop it. I could, I could buy it today and use it. Mm-hmm. And so I have an active production line and I have some interesting variations of F-15s that have been coming off the line. Why don't we just buy those? Right. And so that's exactly what happened. So the... the Turns out that program, we actually saved the government $5 billion in developmental costs that we normally would have paid. And those were paid by South Korea, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. And so that's what we got. The F-15EX is a variation of the F-15SA, which is the Saudi Advanced, and now the QA, the Qatar Advanced F-15. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and this Authentic Media Snapshot. If you like what you heard, head over to Authentic Media on your favorite podcast platform for complete episodes and a whole lot more. We'll see you next time. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.